few years ago, um, it was actually in, in 2014, um, we worked our way through the epistle of James as a church. For those of us who were here then, um, it was a fruitful study, um, and every once in a while, I like to go back and revisit some of my old sermons. And so as we finish out our time here at Logansville, as we prepare for our move um, over to the new church building in Belfound, I thought it would be a good reminder to go back and look at what James has to say specifically about faith. So we'll pick up our study in 1 Corinthians a little bit later. But for now, let's talk about faith. In the mid-1980s, um, the church that I went to as a kid, Center Barnstead Christian Church, put on a vacation Bible school for the kids in the community. There were um, three ladies in particular that I remember who put on the VBS. My own grandmother, Rachel Kidder, Mary Locke, and Leona Golden. Those were three ladies who cared very much for the kids of our community. I don't remember how many kids were there. I remember going every summer. I don't remember what any of the lessons were about. I vaguely remember that there was flannel graph involved. If you know what that is, only a few of you probably do. But one thing I do remember were the names of some of my friends who were there. Adam Young. Adam lives in Montana now. He has one brother who's a pastor and another brother who is a semi-professional wrestler. Adam is somewhere in between those two. Adam grew up in a Christian home. His father is still an elder at the church there in Barnstead, Barnstead, New Hampshire. But to be honest, I'm not sure where Adam is now, spiritually speaking. I do know that he was engaged to be married for at least the second time, but his fiance died last year from complications of COVID. Adam and I are the same age. Another friend, his name is Ernie, Ernie Teedy. He still lives in New Hampshire. He's a self-employed plumber. He's married, has children. Apparently, he's very successful, although I believe that he's been battling cancer for the last few years. To my knowledge, Ernie never made any profession of faith. He didn't grow up in a Christian home, and I would be surprised if he claimed Christianity now. Next is me. I'm a pastor in Ohio. You know my story. And then finally, Shane Duquette. Shane came from a broken home, but he had grandparents who were very concerned for him and saw to it that he went to church and heard the gospel. And Shane was there with us at VBS as well as Sunday school most weeks. I can remember riding with my grandmother to pick him up to take him to VBS. Well, life moves on, and we all kind of went on with our lives. I'd lost contact really with all of them over the years, but because my parents and their parents all live in the same small New Hampshire town, every once in a while I would hear stories about where they were and what they were doing. And a couple of years ago, my father called me to tell me the news that Shane had been found dead in his car in a parking lot. He'd overdosed. I'd been with Shane when he had asked Jesus into his heart 
on more than one occasion. But I'd also seen him and heard the stories over the years of his living a life of sin and struggle with drugs and all kinds of other associated issues. He never had any kind of victory over sin. Was Shane a believer? At his funeral, the pastor, a friend of mine that I respect, he told those in attendance that Shane had prayed to accept Christ with him. And so he assured Shane's friends and family that he was in heaven. But as I said, I'd been with him more than once when he had also prayed the same prayer. I don't want this to be an exposition of Shane's life. But I believe the Bible teaches something very different than what that pastor proclaimed. I believe that 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 pastor actually did some damage because he gave Shane's family a false hope instead of telling them the difficult truth. Turn, if you would, today to the book of James, chapter 2. I want to read verses 14 to 26. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, says this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things they needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, and in the same way was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's stop and pray here. Father, I pray that you would give us what we need today. Help us to understand that you would speak to us through your word. I pray that you would give us ears to hear. That you might be praised, not just with our mouths as we sing songs, but with our hearts. Hearts that have been redeemed. Hearts that have been made new, that have been given new life in Christ, that your name would be praised. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's true that we cannot truly know anybody else's heart, right? We cannot know fully whether somebody else is truly saved. We know that. Only God knows those who are truly his Jesus himself said in John chapter 6, verse 39, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Now that might be worded a little bit funny right there, but the the context of John chapter 6 tells us that he's talking about believers. Jesus will lose no true believer. Those who are his are his. 
The Bible teaches that justification is irrevocable. Justification is irrevocable. But what do we do with people like shame? People who have made a profession of faith, yet they live lives that are contrary to the Christian life and the life that the Bible presents as those who are His. What do do we do with people who actively claim to be Christians, yet live lives that are in opposition to Christianity? And so this morning, we're going to look at James's words here, really just in verses 14 to 17. And Lord willing, over the next three weeks, we're going to work our way through James chapter 2 so that we have a better understanding of what it looks like to be a Christian. But as we begin, I'm I'm reminded... uh, of the old Puritan preacher who had so many points during his long morning sermon that when he stood up to preach in the evening, in order to kind of alleviate the fears of those in attendance and assure them that the, that the evening sermon would be much shorter and easier to follow, he said something to the effect of, fear not, tonight's sermon will be pointless. Well, over the next three weeks as we work through these things, really the next three sermons will have the same point, and that is this, faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. This passage, I believe, is one of the most theologically significant and and really even controversial in the letter of James, and it will do us good to pay careful attention of what God would have for us here. Faith without works is dead. James says something to to that effect. Faith without works is dead. He says something to that effect three times just between verses 14 and 26. So he says it here in verse 17. He calls faith without works useless in verse 20. And then he closes the chapter by repeating his conviction that faith without works is dead. But let's just kind of zoom out just a little bit and look at the big picture of James's letter so that we can understand the, the themes that he is addressing here. So throughout the letter, he keeps coming back really to the same three themes that he believes that these, these scattered Jewish Christians need instruction on, sort of like the Apostle Paul does with the Corinthians. In fact, sometimes I'll refer to James as the, the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem. I do that usually because of Acts 15. He's the pastor there as the, as the, the apostles and, uh, scatter uh, going about the Great Commission. And, and then we see persecution arise. And so many of the Christians that were under his care in the city of Jerusalem had to run for their lives because of persecution. And so he writes them this letter to encourage and spur them on. And as he does, he repeats really the same three themes. The first theme is the trials in the Christian life. When we were studying James back a few years ago, we spent a good chunk of time in chapter 1 talking about the Christian response to, to trials and temptation. If you would like, you can actually go back and listen to those sermons. They're on the website. The second theme that James addresses is wisdom. So trials, and then he addresses wisdom, and, and he briefly says that if we, if we lack wisdom, we should ask God who gives generously. And then he comes back to this theme again in chapter 3. 
And I would encourage you to go ahead and read James chapter 3 this week. Well, the third theme that James addresses in his letter is actually riches and poverty. He begins talking about this idea around verse 27 of chapter 1, and he continues to address this theme through chapter 2, and, and he will pick it up again later in the book. And so much like our study in 1 Corinthians, um, this, this passage follows James' teaching on the unchristlike behavior of showing partiality. Earlier in chapter 2, he mentions this and talks about this, and then, he, and then he talks at the beginning of, really at the end of chapter 1, about true test, uh, a test of true faith. Let's jump right in and pick this up. Just look at verse 14, chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says, says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? James asks this rhetorical question, and this is a question of grave importance. Essentially, he's asking, can faith without works be a saving faith? Well, let's take a step back and ask, what is faith anyway? There's a very clear definition of faith in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Assurance and conviction. How does James' teaching on faith, though, fit in with the broader biblical teachings on the nature of faith? James, at first glance, when we look through these, these verses, it's almost like he's, he's contradicting much of what the Bible teaches. In fact, this is, this is such a common um, uh, response that people have when they read this that even Martin Luther, even, even the great reformer Martin Luther, he called James a straw epistle, an epistle of straw, because it seems to go against the, the Bible's teaching that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But does it really? Does James really contradict the rest of God's word? Well, because of how we interpret the Bible, we understand that, that no portion of the Bible can contradict the rest of the Bible. And so it's important to understand that James is not arguing that works must be added to faith. Instead, the, the, the crux of his argument is that genuine Christian faith will inevitably be characterized by good works. Genuine Christian faith will inevitably be characterized by good works. So, if you're here this morning and you are, um, and you read these verses and you think to yourself, well, I guess what this is saying is that I better start working in a food pantry or I can't be saved. If that's the response, then you don't understand the nature of faith, right? See, trying to add good works to a bogus faith is an exercise in futility because you can't save yourself. What did James say back in chapter 1, verse 21? Listen to what he had said. He said, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. That's repentance. Only through repentance and accepting the implanted word will our souls be saved. Only by the message of the finished work of Jesus Christ can we be saved. 
This is what the prophet Isaiah meant when he cried out in prayer. In Isaiah chapter 64, he says this, From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Salvation only comes from the Lord. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. You, you probably have this one memorized, or at least in there somewhere. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. But don't forget verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We were created and redeemed for good works. The popular phrase that you will sometimes here is that we are to be the hands and feet of Jesus. If you know me, you know I, I probably don't like that phrase that much. Um, it becomes pretty trite pretty fast. But that's the idea. We are saved for good works. James is essentially proposing for us a, a test of genuine faith. True believers, those who are truly redeemed will be known for their works of obedience to God's will. And the example that James has been stressing, he actually stresses this throughout the letter, he brings it up again here, but the example that James stresses is caring for the poor, loving our neighbors, and showing mercy. But if we take this idea, verse 14 specifically, if we take this out of context, we are in danger of promoting a works-based righteousness. But true religion, verse 27, begins with faith because this faith is a faith that works. If you claim to believe right now, today, can that claim, your claim, if you claim Christ as your Savior, you claim to be a Christian, you have faith in Jesus Christ, can that claim be backed up by your life, by the works that you do? By acts of mercy, acts of love, acts of compassion toward others. Listen, this is so important to understand. Mere profession, simply saying that you believe, professing a belief in God, even feeling sorrow for your sin does not count as saving faith. There must be accompanying evidence Look at verses 15 and 16 here. 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? James is going back to his premise. He's mentioned this before, particularly at the end of chapter 1. He's going back to this premise of caring for the poor. But he's being very specific here. I don't know if you caught this. Um, This is where we need to be careful as we read the Scriptures. He specifically says a brother or sister. He's talking about fellow believers, Christians who are living as part of the fellowship, part of the covenant community, part of the church. In other words, there there were poor Christians who literally, this is just like what's going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. There are poor Christians who literally had nothing to eat. They had inadequate clothing. And when they showed up at church to worship with all of the other believers, everybody knew their needs. You can almost picture the scene here amongst these these first century persecuted Christians. They gather together quietly so as to not attract attention to themselves. And someone, an elder, leader of some, in some way says, are there any prayer requests? And somebody answers, yes, please pray for my family. We don't have any food. And anything I can get from begging goes straight to the kids. I haven't eaten in days. The nights are getting colder and the clothes that we're wearing are getting really old and have holes in them. Pray that we will survive until the next Lord's Day. Okay, let's pray for that. Okay, farewell. See you next week. Man, I feel really great about church this morning. I was able to pray with some poor people. Anybody want to go to Tumbleweed? That's the idea. James actually makes this confrontational for them. He says in verse 16, and one of you. This isn't merely hypothetical anymore. This isn't something that could happen. This was something that was happening. Fellow believers, those who were yoked together in the gospel, were living in misery while others were more well off and would say to them, have a nice day, or literally, go in peace, farewell. This all has echoes of what Paul is confronting in the Corinthians as they come to the Lord's table. Some are getting drunk and feasting and others are going without. There's another parallel here, though. The same word there that is used for lacking in daily food is used back in chapter 1, verse 5, for those who were lacking in wisdom. And the parallel is this. We need more than words, right? We need more than words. For Christians... A word of blessing without the act of blessing is like the promise of salvation without the saving act of God in Christ. And so if God had promised to save us and then didn't act on that promise, what good is that, right? All throughout the Old Testament, there are promises of redemption, promises of a Messiah over and over and over again. But what if Christ had never come? But what if Jesus never came? The works of our faith, they have to be more than just words, right? That's what James is really admonishing us to here. 
But it gets worse because look at the second half of the blessing. Uh, Verse 16 again. The blessing is this. This is the sort of a facetious blessing that he says. Go in peace. Be warm and filled. In other words, they knew the need and they did nothing to meet it. I think this is ironic that James puts Uh, sort of insensitive, inactive, so-called Christians on the side of the the unjust, unrighteous rich who have shown neither compassion nor mercy on them. The, The powerful of Jerusalem that have driven them out of their city. The recipients of this letter, they would have considered themselves poor and oppressed. They would not have considered themselves rich. They were running for their lives. They had left their homes behind. They had left friends and family behind. They had left their jobs, all of their possessions. Whatever they could take, they took and they ran. James is saying, when you do this to your fellow brother or sister, you're no better than the people who are oppressing you. Be warm and filled. What good is that kind of faith? Mere words. What good is a faith that does nothing but just sits there? What good is a faith that claims Christianity, claims belief in God, yet does not act on that belief? Inactive faith, faith that does nothing, is a worthless, empty faith. On the other hand, the glory of the Lord ought to be visible in the lives of believers. This is one thing I praise the Lord for regularly for Logansville Church. You serve one another, love one another, care for one another. I've done funerals before where I have no idea if that person is a believer or not. No idea. And so I would charge you in this way today Don't leave us wondering if you are saved. Leave us with no doubt because of the way that you live your life. One day you will leave us. We don't know when that day will be, but one day you will leave us. Lord willing, probably I will preach at some of your funerals. I don't want to give give your grieving relatives false hope. I don't want to say, you know, and I wouldn't say this, but I might think it. They came to my church for years, but I'm just not sure. They came, but I never really saw any fruit. I'm just not sure if they were a believer or not. I don't know my friend Shane's heart, um, but if I were to take a survey of his life and look at all of the evidence and Line it up with Scripture, I would have to say that he died as Esau did. Hebrews 12, 17 tells us that he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. That sounds like shame. Go in peace. Be warm and filled. On the surface, as as you're reading through this, it seems like such an absurd illustration, doesn't it? Who says this? Who says this to to naked, starving people? We do. So often, and I'm convicted of this, 
So often we respond to people's needs with, I'll be praying for you. And then we don't really pray for them. That's what this is talking about. Faith without action, words without deeds. Now this is where we cannot put the cart before the horse. Inactive faith does not save you. That's the the premise of this section of, of Scripture. But neither does simply doing the word save you. James has already told us back in chapter 1, verse 21, that only the implanted word is able to save. So caring for the poor will not save you. Doing good works, whatever they are, will not save you. In other words, the message of the gospel must be accepted and believed in order for salvation to occur. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And the, the word must be believed by those who are prepared to do it and not merely hear it because faith without works is dead. And faith to put it this way, works of faith are not really the same as works of the law. Here's what I mean. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul says this. He says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. See, Paul is talking about justification by following the the ritual works found in Old Testament law, right? Rituals such as circumcision and, and various sacrifices. But he blasts this idea throughout his writing, and he declares that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, Abraham believed God. He put his faith in God, and that was credited to him as righteousness. But James here, James is talking about works of faith. These are are demonstrations of a very real faith in Jesus Christ through works of love and compassion and mercy. Demonstrations, as he says at the very end of chapter 1 and and then on through, really, through chapter 2, such as caring for widows, caring for orphans, and, and not showing partiality, but loving one another. Faith without works is dead. This is what he is reiterating here in verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's not really faith. It's mere lip service. Oh, yeah, I believe. Oh, I'm a Christian. Really? You don't live like one. We've all known people like this. Um, So there are three warnings for us from this passage. Three things that we ought to take heed to as we consider these things. And these really are warnings for any of us. So if you're here today and you're not a believer, if you have not trusted in Christ for salvation, you don't claim to be a Christian, I want to plead with you to believe in Jesus, to put your real faith in him. If you're here and you believe, you believe that you're a true believer, but let's be honest, there's no evidence in your life that other Christians can see, I want you to rethink your belief. The Bible tells us to examine ourselves to see whether we are really in the faith. 
And if you're a mature Christian, if you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for a while, you know that Jesus has saved you, you serve him, you serve his church, then you need to remember to persevere. Persevere. Remain steadfast. And heed these these three warnings. The first is this. Beware of a merely verbal faith. Listen again to verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Someone says he has faith. A true believer does not substitute words for deeds. They go hand in hand. They're inseparable. There should be no doubt as to whether or not you're a believer. There are certain certain traits and characteristics that, that should characterize all Christians. For example, Jesus said in John 13, verses 34 and 35, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Do you know what that means? That means it may not come naturally. Not everybody in this room is that lovable. I'm not going to point anybody out. I might be standing behind the pulpit. But we are commanded to love one another. We can't say that we're Christians and not obey this command, right? You're all lovable. And the world should see it. There should be a marked difference between the way unbelievers care for each other and the way believers care for each other. There should be a big difference. There are many characteristics of Christians as well, uh, many others, but love is at the top of the list, and when we get back to 1 Corinthians, we're going to see that. We need to beware of possessing a merely verbal faith. The second warning is that we need to be aware of a, of a serveless faith. This, of course, is closely related, but it goes beyond loving one another and putting love into action. Again, verses 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? You can't just tell your spouse, your husband, your wife, you can't just tell your kids or your parents, that you love them. You have to actually show them, right? So husbands, dads, we show our families that we love them by providing for them, but not simply by working all the time in order to buy them things. We also must be present in their lives, right? We do things together. We show an interest in their interests. We teach them. We, the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, We teach them God's word. We are active in our love. The same goes for our faith. So we need to be aware of a serveless faith, a faith that says to our children, be warm and be filled and be gone. And then finally, we need to be aware of an intellectual faith, an intellectual faith. This is, honestly, this is where many pastors struggle. This is where I sometimes struggle, an intellectual faith. Listen to verse 17 again. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 
is some of us just kind of simply like intellectual challenges. We like to read and study. We like to put together the puzzles of, of biblical history and prophecy, but our hearts are not stirred. We're not changed. We're not transformed. And so we don't care about the deeds that should accompany our alleged faith. But faith without works is dead. And so we need to beware of a merely intellectual faith. When my friend Shane died, it left a lot of questions in a lot of people's minds. But it's too late for Shane. It's not too late for you. Don't leave us with those same questions. Faith without works is dead. If your faith is real, we should be able to see it. I said, I don't know, last week or the week before that the least you can do is pray for us. I don't mean at least as in it's the bare minimum. It kind of is the bare minimum. It is so important. Somebody asked Spurgeon one time um, about his, I don't know, his success and all the work that he did and what he attributed it to, and he just simply responded something to the effect of, my people pray for me. I know, I know you pray for me, for us. I want to challenge you to continue to pray, to continue to pray over these next few weeks as we transition. And We don't know what it's going to look like. In some ways, we're moving into a new house, right? Some of you have moved into new houses, and you don't know where anything is, and things are in boxes for a while, and it's going to be that way for a little while. But there's also potentially going to be just sort of a difference in ministry. It's going to feel different being in a different room, being in a different building, driving to church. That's probably only me that has to deal with that going to feel different. Um, but one of the things that I have loved when we were over there on Good Friday is that it's still the same church. And we have rejoiced together. And so next week, Lord willing, we're going to rejoice together in a different, a different spot, a different piece of geography, but it's still the same church. So please be praying for one another. Serving, continue to serve one another, continue to love one another, continue to work out your faith with fear and trembling, to work out your own salvation. Pray with me. Father, as we, um, as we close out our time in Logansville, it is bittersweet, it is strange and doesn't feel real and yet at the same time it's exciting and it's been a lot of work and but Lord our faith is in you not in a, a piece of geography or a specific building you have assembled your church not the building but the people you're continuing to assemble this church and so, Lord, it is our prayer today as we come to the table 
that we would continue to love one another and work out our salvation, that our, our faith would have deeds attached to it, that we would be quick to help one another, to serve one another, to pray for one another, that we would be quick to, to act on the faith because, because our faith is in you. Our faith is in the God who saves, the God who hears, the God who listens, the God who has spoken to us, the God who has saved us. Because our faith is in you. And so as we come to the table this morning, Lord, we come as a people who have put our faith in the finished work of Christ. We come as a people who have trusted in Christ for salvation because of his work on the cross. That he who knew no sin became sin. That we might become the righteousness of God. And so we come as your people who have been redeemed, who have been saved by faith in Christ. And so Father, we thank you for the bread and the cup. We thank you for Christ's death and his resurrection. We thank you that, that he has pulled us into, into, into fellowship, into communion, into covenant with him. We praise you, Lord, that we are yours. Strengthen our faith this week, Lord, that your name might be praised. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.